Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the growing scandal at the Supreme Court following revelations that Justice Alito appears to have leaked the decision on the Hobby Lobby case to wealthy friends and donors to right-wing religious causes who had a vested interest in the case, then passed the information on to an anti-abortion crusader, the Reverend Rob Schenck. Joining us to discuss the need for the Supreme Court to have an ethical code of conduct which all jurists on the federal bench adhere to, except those at the top, is Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as the deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Then we'll examine how the Democrats narrowly escaped disaster in the midterms, which was more like deliverance than victory, raising the question of why they were in such a perilous position in the first place. Joining us is Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And we'll discuss his article at Salon, For Democrats, It Was the Dunkirk Election. They Escaped Disaster, But the Road Ahead Is Hard. Then finally, we'll speak with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast This is Democracy and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. He joins us to discuss his article at the New York Times, Biden is Wasting Precious Time Fighting for America's Soul. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thank you so much, Ian, for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Lisa. And now we're getting more of a glimpse of leaks coming out of the Supreme Court, and it seems to be basically the finger is pointing at Justice Alito, certainly in the 2014 case of Hobby Lobby or Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, and possibly, given the nature of his behavior, there was, of course, a leak of the full draft of the Dobbs decision this May. But it's just so clear that Lido and his wife, Martha Ann, were dining with these wealthy donors from Ohio, the rights, who had a vested interest in the outcome of the Hobby Lobby decision. And Gail Wright contacted the Reverend Shank, uh, who's in charge of uh, this lobbying organization, Faith and Action. Shortly after the dinner, she said in her email, Rob, if you want some interesting news, please call no emails. So, and then, of course, it's pretty likely that he got, uh, the Reverend Shank got a preview of the Hobby Lobby decision. How does this strike you? Well, I read the New York Times story closely, and they spent months uh, documenting it. And I think that it's um, very revealing about how um, Justice Alito has operated despite his categorical denial 
It's consistent with his, um, you know, extremely uh, extreme politicization of the court, uh, the way he has approached his job, you know, dating back to uh, when he, you know, mouthed words at President Obama during the State of the Union address and his recent speeches this summer in the aftermath of his uh, opinion to overturn decades of legal precedents protecting women's constitutional rights to abortion. And so um, I'm in some ways not surprised, although I'm certainly horrified. And um, as you point out, Ian, um, this is not the only leak that's been reported. Obviously, there was a leak, as you mentioned earlier this year, that um, seemed to me um, and many others to be designed to buck up Alito. It was a leak of Alito's opinion in a way that um, seemed designed to limit any of his five, um, the five people in that majority, the four people who are with him, from defecting to go with John Roberts um, on uh, his concurrence, um, which would have, which would have blocked the the overt overturning of Roe. It would have eroded Roe, but it would not have um, done the full reversal. And so all this effort by the right to claim that this was some sort of left wing leak this spring, I think that was um, you know um, bogus. I think that that was a leak that was designed to. Um, block Kavanaugh, for example, from changing his position after Alito had written that opinion and has had been assigned the opinion. So now the question is, uh, the question comes not just uh, did Alito leak the Hobby Lobby opinion, the fact that he was writing it, the direction it was going to go to his uh, his buddies who are super rich people, um, but did he or did someone close to him? Um, leak the opinion that he was writing um, in the Dobbs case. Um, and so, you know, I think I think the bigger picture is we have a Supreme Court that is um, not trustworthy, that certainly cannot be trusted to protect our rights. It's one that has severe has been severely compromised from an ethical standpoint between uh, Clarence Thomas's behavior and, and decisions on the court and his refusal to recuse his wife's involvement. Uh, in the January 6th, fomenting um, the effort to overturn or stop the counting of the vote. Um, uh, Alito's behavior, which has been documented by the Times, despite his denial. Um, and, um, you know, other things that we're seeing, like the fact that uh, Amy Coney Barrett does not reveal the clients of her husband. Um, Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh does not, you know, has not fully revealed, um, you know, the sources that paid off his debts before he became a Supreme Court justice. You have a cloud hanging over this court that also includes the fact that this court has been captured by the dark money operations of Leonard Leo. And so I just think this court is operating under a dark cloud ethically. It's not, in my personal view, worthy of the trust of the American people. It's a political operation like a like a small political committee, really helmed in part, really helmed by Alito um, because of the Trump appointees. And um, it is determined to destroy our rights. And that's what it's doing. That's what it's shown uh, that this new majority that Trump put in place with Leo's help, that's what it's doing. But it wasn't just uh, Justices Samuel and Leto that were involved with this sort of cozying up to this these wealthy Ohio religious fundamentalists to Gail Wright and her husband. Also, along with Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas and Antonin Scalito were, were also friends. They socialized. And in one of her emails, she said, we were invited to use the seats from Nino and Sam, Nino being yeah. the nickname for Scalia, that Gail Wright wrote to Schneck before the arguments in the Hobby Lobby case. They got, they got front row seats. And they had these uh, social relations, which were cultivated by the rights, they went hunting with Scalia. They socialized with the Alitos, with the Scalias, with the Thomases. They hosted the Alitos at their vacation home in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and on and on. So it's almost like they were uh, <laughs> at an inside seat at the Supreme Court. The idea that you, these wealthy religious zealots paid money to... They prayed. They also prayed in the Supreme Court with these justices. I didn't realize that they had their little prayer sessions in the Supreme Court as well. I mean, it really is extraordinary, Ian. And as you point out, it's not it's not just as if they had a front seat. They were given, uh, in essence, a front seat at the Supreme Court. And and part of the mechanism was uh, money to the, the Supreme Court Historical Society, which now appears to be 
just a, a vehicle for this sort of un, undue, inappropriate influence. Um, one of the things that has always struck me is that this notion that um, if someone is your quote friend, then the gifts they give you, even if they're um, some, uh, you know, a resort, staying at a resort-like environment in Jackson Hole or in Texas, like with uh, with Antonin Scalia or um, with uh, Clarence Thomas and his uh, staying over at Leonard Leo's house in Maine, his mansion in Maine, um, you know, near Bar Harbor, or uh, staying on Harlan Crow, the billionaire's yacht, a billionaire that befriended Thomas after he was appointed to the D.C. Circuit, that somehow there's some sort of friend exception to luxurious gifts. Um, I don't think that should be the case. I think that any such gifts, any such benefits should be revealed to the American people. And the names of those individuals should be revealed to the American people. Anyone who does give them a gift that's anything other than like a uh, you know, a ballpoint pen, um, you know, like a Bic uh, pen, not a fancy ballpoint pen. Uh, it's extraordinary. Um, and it's extraordinary, like you said, also, that our Supreme Court, that this uh, secular citadel um, would be used uh, for, um, you know, prayer meetings um, by people who have an agenda before the Supreme Court, have an agenda to um, crush longstanding interpretations of the First Amendment to protect uh, we, the American people, from having to subsidize the religious education or indoctrination of um, some of these right-wing zealots um, and their agenda. Um, you have the way that this court and Justice Alito, uh, Samuel Alito, did in the Hobby Lobby case, which is to use our First Amendment as a sword to strike down um, anti-discrimination measures. And in that case, as I think you and I have talked about before, um, uh, Ian, you have a company that's given, a corporation that's basically given religious freedom rights uh, for a right that actually is not articulated in the Bible. And that company was um, fined for stealing treasures from the Middle East. So the Hobby Lobby uh, leaders um, were taking, you know, stealing uh, stealing artifacts in the Middle East. And, and I don't know, but I, I've heard that the Ten Commandments includes thou shalt not, thou shalt not steal. But somehow they weren't bound by that, but they could somehow enforce their religious beliefs to uh, use their corporation to bar women from having access to intrauterine devices or birth control, because that supposedly the corporation has some sort of conscience. You know, so I think this court has gotten the law wrong, uh, and Alito uh, and Scalia and Thomas um, have been instruments in that distortion of our law to advance their personal religious agenda. Um, and I think we're going to have to have some major, major reforms to um, ensure that we have a court that is fair. We don't have a Supreme Court that's fair right now. We have a Supreme Court that's been captured by the far right. And that far right, including Alito, in my view, is they're certainly not legally bound by any um, you know, code of conduct for judges. And they don't seem to be bound by any other ethical code. They seem to be very happy rubbing elbows with super rich donors and going on vacations at their um, with their, you know, uh, subsidized by these that by these super rich right wing elites, and it's just wrong. It smells. It stinks. It's um, terrible, and it needs to be stopped. Well, but the whole right wing idea of religious liberty, which is behind the Hobby Lobby decision, is so unchristian, if that's the right word to use. I mean, it's just become an excuse for bigotry and hatred. Uh, it certainly is, has been deployed that that way intensively over the past um, several years, in particular during the Trump period, where you had these religious leaders laying hands on him and acting as if he was somehow chosen by God. This man who, um, you know, uh, routinely, flagrantly um, lies and cheats and steals, uh, you know, steals classified documents, some of our most sensitive documents, and yet he gets a pass from these evangelical leaders. Um, which is truly extraordinary. And, and even he gets described in some of this, um, this the rhetoric as if he's somehow chosen uh, by a divine, you know, by God, by, by the divine, which is, you know, I would say absurd and outrageous and would be offensive to any person who would, had genuine faith or had a faith that was based on uh, notions of compassion or justice. It just defies, it boggles the mind, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, there's more to these religious cases, which is that you have 
um, dark money being used to fuel these amicus briefs. We know um, that there was secret money that was poured in from the Bradley Foundation, this zombie foundation that was created by these anti-labor right-wing brothers in Wisconsin that has been used um, by Leo and by others, by Barry Side, who has bankrolled Leo, um, to fund briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we know that that foundation secretly funded uh, amicus briefs in the Hobby Lobby case, as, as well as other cases attacking labor rights um, and uh, the Affordable Care Act. And so you have a whole industry that has come about in the last uh, decade or so in which you have um, billionaires basically throwing their voices uh, through these uh, efforts by these groups to change our rights, including religious rights, including our right to be free from the establishment of religion, from subsidizing other people's religion. And so this clique of uh, right-wing religious zealots that are very wealthy, the Bradleys, uh, the Wrights, Leonard Leo, they're all involved. I mean, where are Le Leonard Leo's fingerprints on this latest scandal involving Alito? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know. In the in, in the write up from the Times, you know, you have, um, you know, a very particular focus on these evangelical, uh, this, these evangelical leaders. You don't have, um, you know, Leo wasn't mentioned in that particular case. But for me, when I see the cast of characters, you know, namely Alito, who, um, who, uh, you know, Leo and others helped put on push onto the Supreme Court back in two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, you know, he's someone who um, was always uh, far to the right. He was described by some as Scalito, a little Alito, a little Scalia. Um, he's someone who um, was parading uh, abroad. I think in Rome was one of his speeches about um, his ruling in in Roe. And you can just see in that decision, the the Dobbs decision, how much of an influence the right wing groups that were tied to Leonard Leo um, had over that decision. Basically. Um, queuing that case up to the Supreme Court so that he could reverse Roe, which was their ambition, which was the whole point of why these, one of the main points, not the whole point, but one of the reasons why these particular judges were put on the list for Donald Trump to choose from, um, and also to advance Leo's um, anti-regulatory agenda. It's his agenda against the power of the federal government to do, uh, to protect we the people from corporations. But in this particular instance with the Hobby Lobby case, you know, I think that this investigation by the New York Times really calls for a re-examination of the ties of those amicus uh, briefs, as well as um, the activities of the Supreme Court Historical Society and the people who are funding it and who've gained access to these justices through it, and also the notion of who is palling around with Alito, um, where are they going on their vacations, who's subsidizing their vacations. So I think there's a lot a lot more to it. And as Jane Mayer reported earlier this year, as I, as I mentioned uh, or referred to, um, the fact is, is that the Thomases have have stayed with stayed at Leo's mansion in Maine, but they've also, you know, been ferried around the country by billionaire Harlan Crow. And this is the sort of thing where as a whole, not just in the Hobby Lobby case, but what you have is an extraordinary amount of influence by some very elite, very far right religious, you know, uh, figures or people who are advancing a very far right religious agenda like like Leo who is out of step with most Catholics. Uh, many Catholics continue to support uh, a woman's right to make a decision uh, to, to follow the advice of her doctors uh, when it comes to her reproductive health, um, uh, but not the extremists that Leo has helped support, including Students for Life, which uh, box that there even being any exception for incest for you know young girls, 10, 12 years old, who've been raped by a family member uh, or for rape victims of any age. And so this, these are extreme ideas. It's one thing for you to say to yourself, like for yourself, that you would not have an abortion if you're a woman, or I suppose if you're a partner, that you wouldn't support that for your partner. But it's a very different thing to say that the law should constrain someone who doesn't share your religious beliefs, doesn't practice in your religious faith, to use your religion to, to bar other people from exercising their own rights and for getting legitimate medical treatment that's recommended by their doctors. And so I, to me, that's extreme. And I think we have to understand that it's extreme to try to impose your own religious beliefs as legally binding on other people. It's the so, antithesis of freedom. So just in the last minute then, Lisa Graves, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Congressman Hank Johnson are calling out 
the Chief Justice John Roberts to do something about this outrageous behaviour of Alito and the other right-wing judges in terms of there is no apparently ethical standards, there's no ethical restraints on the Supreme Court. There is on all other uh, members of the federal judiciary except the Supreme Court. So is something going to happen there? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's it's going to be challenging, obviously, with the House being captured by a narrow majority of uh, of the Trump party. But I certainly applaud um, Representative Hank Johnson from Georgia and Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island for their leadership and for standing up for this. And I'm hopeful that at some point in the near future, there will be a Congress that is willing to um, impose just the most basic uh, standards of ethics on our Supreme Court, if they should have actually the highest ethics, not the lowest or none. And as they point out, as you mentioned, Ian, there is no judicial code of conduct that applies to the Supreme Court. And that is a severe uh, problem. And uh, it's something that has to be fixed. The court's integrity has absolutely been impugned. And um, it really calls into question um, the legitimacy of the decisions that this this court that has been um, so captured by dark money that this court, this majority, this faction of the far, you know, far right justices, um, the decisions that they're issuing. And so we need to have a real conversation nationally about holding this court accountable, impeaching justices who violate basic ethical notions, whether there's a code or not, um, and restoring the integrity, the integrity of the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. It's a joy to be on your show. Well, thank you, Lisa. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, who's Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how the Democrats narrowly escaped disaster in the midterms which was more like deliverance than victory, raising the question of why they were in such a perilous position in the first place. It has always been around. It will always have a niche. But they'll make it a privilege, not a right, accessible only to the rich. Hey, pro-lifers need to dig themselves, because life don't stop after birth. And for a child born to the unprepared, it might even just get worse. The situation would surely change if they were to find themselves in it. Supporters of the H-bomb and firebombing clinics. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Lofgren, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Salon, For Democrats, It Was a Dunkirk Election. They Escaped Disaster, But the Road Ahead is Hard. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, the Democrats dodged a bullet. Conventions, history, and predictions indicated that they would lose, as the party in the White House normally does in the midterm. But you're saying here in your article at Salon, as at Dunkirk, this was deliverance rather than victory, and the protagonists should ask themselves how they ended up in such peril in the first place. So let's deal with that question. How could the Republicans even field a team of candidates after January the 6th. I, I find that extraordinary. How did they make a comeback from the party of insurrectionists to being treated as a regular and reasonable uh, political alternative? Yeah, that's one of the things I pointed out in the article, that on the morning of January 7th, you wouldn't think they would remain as a major party. Uh, nevertheless, uh, they ran a full slate of candidates and did surprisingly well in a lot of cases. Um, I think the thing is that we're in a new sort of electoral map where the number of swing states is kind of dwindling although those remain vital because of the Electoral College. 
and Democrats did quite well in uh, some of these erstwhile swing states, uh, Fetterman and uh, Shapiro uh, sort of cruised to victory in Pennsylvania. But the downside is that places like Texas, which uh, Democrats have been deceiving themselves for years, that somehow because of the influx of Hispanics and tech workers uh, into Texas, uh, that this would somehow become a blue state. Uh, Abbott cruised to victory. The Texas legislature, both houses, uh, reinforced Republican control. Ken Paxton, the attorney general who's under federal indictment, uh, got reelected. And you see the same thing in Florida. Uh, It's incomprehensible to me that a state with over 4 million uh, senior citizens drawing Social Security and Medicare would uh, keep electing people like uh, Rick Scott, They've elected him three times now statewide as governor and senator, uh, who wants to uh, cut Medicare and Social Security. What kind of a messaging uh, would the Democrats need to make inroads? Because it's almost as if you're not dealing with a rational electorate that uh, pays attention to its own self-interest. Well, I've always been astounded at uh, Rick Scott's success when he should be in jail. He he basically, when he was uh, the head of a big medical company, Columbia HCA. Oh, yeah, HCA. Right. He was the CEO. The company had to pay a $1.7 billion fine for Medicare fraud. So he's, he's ripped off the government in the worst possible way, and yet he keeps getting rewarded. How do you explain yeah. that? As a champion of fiscal conservatism who stole from the government. Uh, again, I cannot understand that on any rational basis, any more than I can understand Herschel Walker getting 48.5% of the vote when he's clearly brain damaged from playing football. His wife is pretty well... Uh, established he's a wife beater, um, and there's now reports of two or more women that he had affairs with and uh, forced them or coerced them into abortions. Now, that is everything against what the party of family values is supposed to stand for. Where was his strongest support? White evangelicals, 88% of whom uh, turned out for uh, Herschel Walker, rather than Ralph Warnock, who's an ordained minister. Now, that makes no sense in any kind of a rational world, but that's the electoral map we're stuck with. Well, you're a recovering Republican, Mike Lofgren. Oh, I think I've recovered. (laughs) Okay, I'm glad to hear that. But I, for the life of me, don't understand what you're telling us. I mean, you're absolutely laying it out the way it is, and it just makes your head explode. Is the only explanation that I can come up with is that America is a kind of creeping idiocracy. Uh, Yes. I believe the screenwriter uh, for that movie, uh, Idiocracy, um, thought at the time that he was producing a satire and he said after uh, Donald Trump's election, uh, I didn't realize I was writing a documentary. <laughs> well, so is this then the answer is the degradation of American public education? Uh, to some degree, that's, that's the case. Um, but ask yourself why... Uh, In certain English-speaking countries, there's this strong undercurrent of uh, radical right belief. Uh, Well, there are English-speaking countries in which Rupert Murdoch operates. Fox News 
uh, has had a definite effect on this type of thing. People don't distinguish news from propaganda. Well, when we talk about the collapse of public education, uh, the lack of investment, Trump, of course, famously on the campaign trail in 2016, saying, I love the poorly educated, and then you've got Fox News propaganda, you still can't excuse the Democrats for losing these people who have been beguiled and misled and manipulated. And the fact that anybody supports Trump is just mind-boggling because he's such a manifest fraud, and yet they love him with cult-like adoration. So uh, you can't let the Democrats off the hook. In your oh, analysis, why did they fail? not, because their messaging is kind of milk toasty. Um, you know, they did not uh, campaign on uh, the Dobbs decision uh, to anywhere near the degree that they should have, uh, and also on the preservation of democracy itself. One would hope that there's people in this country for whom that's important. Um, instead, uh, what we have is a situation where a lot of establishment Democrats, and I, I can remember one who's you know been retired for a while, and uh, he was at the time a very kind of milk toast, middle of the road type. Uh, Richard Gephardt, he was the one-time majority leader of the uh, Democratic Party in the in the House of Representatives. He was outraged at the ethical problems that. Uh, uh, Democrats caused some, when some of these independent Democratic groups intervened in the primary elections of the uh, Republicans by highlighting, you know, uh, certain uh, bad characteristics of the candidates, or uh, if they were open primaries, you know, advertising and supporting, you know, uh, electorally the candidate who could not win or who was calculated as less likely to win. Well, you know, uh, we're not playing by the Marquis of Queensbury rules anymore, and Democrats better realize that. Uh, if anyone had any illusions about that, January 6th should have shattered them. Well, this election, though, the Democrats were rescued by young and minority voters. And so they have a huge growing constituency there that could could and should ensure them a permanent majority. And, of course, there was that book uh, written some time back by um, Roy Taxera about a Democratic majority, which hadn't materialized in the way that they had predicted. But it is materializing and it would seem to me that they can really build on this. And in contrast, you have a Republican Party now, particularly in the House of Representatives. They're going to be, for the next two years, just insane. The American people are going to watch a complete meltdown of this radical right lunacy. So that's what I don't understand about the messaging, as you pointed out, has been poor can't they make it clear? I mean, every time Trump talks about the radical left, which is a joke. I mean, there is no radical left in this country, at least nothing Correct. Uh, that's Makes in any no way visible. Correct. whatsoever. Right. So can't they frame the reality of what the Republican Party has become? A radical right depository of lunatics. Um, apparently they have difficulty, although you can look... Uh, at things differently insofar as it wasn't a bad result uh, in 2022, uh, this, uh, earlier this month, insofar as going into 2024, if the uh, Democrats had held both chambers and the presidency, it would just be a referendum on them. Whereas the House now having a very 
small and brittle majority for Republicans, um, they won't, they'll be able to stop some things. They won't be able to stop judges or administration figures being confirmed in the Senate. So that's at least a blessing. Um, but they will show controlling one chamber. They will show the American people what rule by Republicans is like. And it's going to be a circus because uh, Kevin McCarthy's name really ought to be Charlie McCarthy, Edgar Bergen's uh, uh, the ventriloquist, his dummy, because uh, he'll be moving his lips on the House floor, but it'll be the Freedom Caucus pulling the strings. Right, but behind the Freedom Caucus is Donald Trump. So you can make Precisely. the case that Donald Trump controls the House now. That's uh, what Sidney Blumenthal argued in a recent article well, at The Guardian. That is, that is the case. Uh, Sidney Blumenthal is correct. And uh, I think if it, the Democrats are shopping for talking points, that is the talking point. I don't think Trump helped in the general in the general election in November 2022. Uh, so that is the talking point they need, and it has the uh, convenience of also being true. So, your article though at Salon, Mike Lofgren. For Democrats, it was the Dunkirk election. They escaped disaster, but the road ahead is hard. And the road ahead in 2024 is pretty grim. The Democrats will be defending 23 Senate seats against the GOP's 10. So they're really going to have to step up their game in these two years of, of what will be gridlock and chaos. That is correct, and they're going to have to make a decision about Kirsten Cinema. Her name is poison among Democrats in her state. Uh, yeah. Do they primary her? Because she's not going to. That's that's one seat they're going to lose. Right. Well, I don't think you can stop uh, the primary process, whether it's on the Republican side or the Democratic side, right? The, uh, there, there's no in her case, it would be very difficult. Uh, I know uh, field organizers in in that state, and my God, they they say uh, she's poison. Right. Well, uh, there's just so, no way you to know, restrain could, them. Who who would have thought we had uh, two Democratic senators in Arizona? But on the other hand, one of them really isn't a Democrat. Right. Well, she and Manchin are responsible for allowing this absolute rash of of uh, gerrymandering that's absolutely prevented but to different differing degrees of responsibility. You can understand Manchin coming from a state where Trump won both times by forty points. Uh, it's less excusable in Kirsten Cinema's case. Right, but they stuck to the filibuster at the expense of voting reform, and they could have done something about gerrymandering. Oh, absolutely. And look what happened absolutely. in Florida. They've gerrymandered that. Ohio, they conducted an election on an illegal map, illegal according to the Supreme Court of Ohio, yet they went. the Republicans pushed ahead, and J.D. Vance won and others. You know, and then, of course, in New York State, that's the most inexplicable of all, how the Democrats managed to lose in a deep blue state. So there has to be some house cleaning here, or some Senate cleaning, I guess. <laughs> that is correct. So what is your suggestion here in terms of having dodged the bullet in this Dunkirk-type escape from disaster, but with a still with the Nazis? <laughs> Actually, you could make the you know, the Nazis were still across the channel poised to invade England, and the Nazis are poised to invade the United States. We've had it here before. I mean, some of the stuff that Rachel Maddow has been doing in her podcasts about these pro-Nazi coups that took place in the late 30s and 40s in this country, they're back. There's no two ways about it. How, how would you describe 
the Freedom Caucus and Donald Trump and this cult-like movement that's captured the Republican Party? Well, this is not totally unprecedented. Uh, There were Republican congressmen in those days uh, who would have been for everything uh, Trump is for or the insurrectionists. There, There was a congressman, a Republican from Michigan, in 1946, he tried to hold up funding for the prosecution of these uh, corporate uh, Nazis like Krupp and Siemens. Siemens, by the way, designed and built uh, the ovens in the death camps. And he tried to hold it up. He said that this was... uh, some sort of show trial against, you know, honest working, you know, people and and companies, and it shows a hatred of the free enterprise system and so forth. So we've had these types of uh, crazies before. The problem is now they're much better organized and directed by uh, propaganda organs like Fox News. Well, we will see whether the Orange Duce, the Mussolini of Mar-a-Lago, how his act is going to continue. I find him, you know, seems to be running out of steam. He just rants on for a couple of hours at these rallies, and um, I'm not sure that he's going to last very long. But on the other hand, we're talking about people in a different universe. who They don't see Trump the way that you and I see him. So maybe the magic lives on, even though... The act looks pretty tied to me. Well, and whether or not uh, Trump gets the hook, you know, there's plenty of uh, many Trumps in waiting. Indeed. uh, Trying out their act. Right. I saw that over the weekend. It's pretty sad. Well, Mike Lofkin, I thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Mike Lofkin, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Salon. For Democrats, it was the Dunkirk election. They escaped disaster, but the road ahead is hard. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into how Biden is wasting precious time fighting for America's soul. But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool. He's taught in his school from the start by the rule that the laws are with him to protect his white skin, to keep up his heat. So he never thinks straight about the shape that he's in. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. And he has an article in the New York Times, Biden is Wasting Precious Time Fighting for America's Soul. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeremy Suri. Nice to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Of course, President Biden entered the political arena, as he has stated on a number of occasions, because of the Nazis showing up at Charlottesville chanting, the Jews will not replace us. And he embarked on uh, this crusade, I guess, for America's soul. But you're suggesting that from day one, that was kind of a fool's errand. Yes, I, I think as a historian, Ian, one has to say that Americans have never been united. We've always been a diverse country filled with all kinds of uh, points of view, all kinds of religions, all kinds of backgrounds. And this vision that Americans will somehow come together, that they'll have a come to Jesus moment and all see 
the same way on big issues. It's just it's non-existent in our history and it's very unlikely today. What I think is more likely and more in line with our history is finding a set of issues that can bring people who have very different point of views to a position of cooperation, even if they continue to disagree. Well, curiously, it's the Nazis who were marching with the tiki torches, chanting, the Jews will not replace us. They have done incredibly well in our politics. They have got, you could argue, a lot of people with similar views, uh, at least those that would tolerate those kind of views, are in powerful positions in the House of Representatives. I agree. And I think one of the real uh, challenges we face is that in some ways the extremists on the right have done exactly what I said. They have brought together uh, people who have very different points of view, even some moderate Republicans, to embrace their racist, uh, xenophobic, violent uh, position on immigration in particular, the replacement theory, as you called it. And, and we need to offer an alternative. I think that's the point, not, not trying to find some identity that brings all, all Americans together, but a set of issues and positions that bridge the differences between different groups in our society. So Trump and also the radicals right in the, in the House, they always refer to the Democrats as the radical left. So is it time for the Democrats to start referring to the control of the House of Representatives as the radical right, which is clearly what they are? I think absolutely. I think one of the things uh, President Biden did very effectively, although controversially, before the midterm elections was give us a, a series of speeches where he laid out why uh, the MAGA Republicans, as he called them, and I think he's referring to many members of the House of Representatives here, are out of touch with American democracy and out of touch with the issues that most Americans care about. Uh, what's one thing that the midterms revealed? Even in states like Kentucky, as we had seen before in Kansas, uh, the far right or the radical right is out of touch even with mainstream conservatives in these conservative states who believe that women should at least have some control over their bodies and some decision-making power. So um, I do think that uh, this is an effective tactic for Biden and the Democrats to take, not only to call the right radical right, but to show how out of touch they are on the issues, not identity, but the issues that Americans care about. So the Democrats dodged a bullet, clearly, in the midterms, but... I'm not sure. I mean, I'm trying to get the figures on who voted in this last election. Do you have them, Jeremy? Because I understand that actually more Republicans voted than Democrats, even though Democrats did incredibly well for a midterm and young voters in particular pushed their numbers up and saved their bacon. Well, I do think a large number of Republicans voted. I don't know yet. I don't think we have the final numbers, Ian. Uh, we're still waiting on California and elsewhere to see if it's more Republicans total. But suffice it to say that Republican turnout was actually very high. So at this point, with a predictable paralysis in the, the next two years and the House of Representatives just going after Hunter Biden and uh, trying to defund the Department of Justice and impeach anybody and everybody. What should Biden do? He's about to decide over the holidays, he said, that he whether or not he's going to run again for president. And that in itself seems a little odd that he's said, I've got to consult with the family. Well, this is <laughs> why not consult with the American people? I mean, <laughs> it seems an odd situation. And it's difficult for him, obviously. He just turned 80 on Sunday. And if he says he's not running, he could be a, an instantly a lame duck. But on the other hand, Jeremy, he could take away the insanity of, of these people on the House because if he's not going to run again, are they going to start impeaching him and Hunter and everybody else and going after the laptop and doing what they're predictably about to do? Well, I think they're going to do that regardless. I, I mean, I don't think there's anything he can do, uh, President Biden, that will discourage a, as you called, radical right fringe, uh, which is more than just a few people. It's a significant part of the uh, House. And with a very narrow majority that 
um, Speaker McCarthy will have, uh, the very far right will be able to hold him hostage and they will do some crazy things such as trying to, um, you know, uncover Hunter Biden's laptop, all this stuff that we know is nonsense and that most Americans are, don't care about. But I think Biden's opportunity, this is why I wrote the piece in the New York Times, Biden's opportunity is to put forth a number of issues where 70% of Americans agree and for him to push to try to break up the Republican coalition in the House and in the Senate, he'll have a majority in the Senate anyway, uh, to find a few members who will come to his position. Uh, the, the Republican majority in the House, Ian, will include, I think, three or four New York um, Congress people who represent districts that Biden won in the last election and the Democrats are likely to win in the next election. Uh, these are members of Congress who will not want to be seen as the radical right. And so if Biden puts forth positions on inflation and economic aid, on women's rights to control their own bodies, on safety in schools, uh, on a number of issues that are widely popular, um, I think they're going to have a lot of pressure to vote with him, not with the Republican majority. He might actually win some legislation, or at the very least, he will show voters how crazy the Republican side is. So it's particularly crazy to my mind, since I'm sort of interested in foreign affairs, etc. I can't believe that there's a pro-Putin caucus in the United States House of Representatives and there's a number of these far-right Congress people, for whatever reason, want to cut off aid to Ukraine and help Putin, uh, who is universally excoriated. That in itself would be a test, wouldn't it? Wouldn't there be enough moderate Republicans in the House to block McCarthy and the radicals from pulling the plug on the Ukraine? Absolutely. I mean, this is mana from heaven for uh, Biden if uh, the Putin caucus, as you say, tries to throw its weight around, because um, it's quite clear that there are more than 60 senators and probably more than 310 members of Congress who strongly believe we should con continue to aid Ukraine and will not want to be seen as being anywhere near the pro-Putin caucus. Uh, just coming back to those New Yorkers, I just talked about the New York members who have been elected, who are giving the Republicans their tiny, tiny majority in the House. All of them are from districts that are pretty sane on foreign policy. If you look at the surveys in those districts, none of them want to be seen as pro-Putin. So if the far right pushes on that issue, uh, that gives uh, Biden such an advantage to show how reasonable he is and to break up uh, the Republican House uh, coalition. And it's very likely, Ian, that uh, Kevin McCarthy will not survive that kind of challenge. We, we could see the Republicans go through multiple different speakers of the House in the next few years. Well, Sidney Blumenthal had a piece in the, the Guardian the other day that made the case that Donald Trump is, is for all intents and purposes, the leader of the Republican House. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree with that? I don't think so after the midterms. Um, well, he's suggesting that the, the radical right, Marjorie Taylor Greene and company, are basically agents of Trump. I, I think that's true. But the uh, members of the House who were elected and barely came to a majority, they recognized that most of them won because they were not associated with Trump. A few of them won because they were associated with Trump. But across the board, the Trump candidates lost. And so I, I, I think his leverage is a lot less than it was before. It doesn't mean his leverage is non-existent. Uh, but I think actually, in some ways, Mitch McConnell's leverage has increased because he's been proven right that these Trump candidates were a disaster. So how do you see Trump in these two years? He still basically controls the Republican Party, but on the stump, his act is getting tired <laughs> just ranting for two hours at a time. Uh, I don't see how he can keep that up. And, and his an announcement was universally panned as being low energy, to use one of his phrases. <laughs> so how do you think, is he a fading figure? Do you think he's going to still be around in 2024? I think he has become a spoiler for the Republicans. And I think they have a real problem. They're going to have to find a way to silence him or to give him something to make him go away. And I don't see how that happens. He will play a role for the Republicans that will be similar to the role Ted Kennedy played in 1980, challenging Jimmy Carter, 
or the role Ross Perot played in challenging George H.W. Bush. Um, I, I, I think Trump is intent on running for president. I do not think he will win the Republican nomination, but I think he will try to run anyway. And he has about 20 to 30 percent of the electorate that is firmly behind him. Seventy percent is against him and he will split the Republican Party. And this is a disaster uh, for Republicans. He's going to make it impossible for Kevin McCarthy to hold his Republican uh, majority together in the House. Um, so, so Trump will play the role of spoiler. As as um, Michael Bloomberg said years ago, everything he touches, he destroys. And the only thing worse than being Trump's enemy is being his friend. Well, would that mean, though, that at the end of the day in 2024, if, say, DeSantis got the domination, that Trump would pick up his marbles and petulantly form a third party? I believe so. I see no reason to think he would do otherwise. And if he's under indictment, which he's likely to be, but not yet convicted, uh, I think he will have the same incentive to run as an independent that he that he had last week to declare his candidacy so prematurely, because he believes if he's running for office, he can make the case that any legal action against him is somehow politically motivated. And, and so he will have the same incentive in two years as he has right now. So just in the last couple of minutes here, Jeremy Suri, in your article towards the end, you say the rioters who attacked the Capitol in January of 2021 feared that Mr. Biden's promise of unity would destroy their power. Just elaborate on that, if you would. Well, I think much of what motivates the Trump radical right is a fear that our country is becoming more diverse, as you said before, Ian, that they're being replaced. Uh, and they believe that people of color who are coming from South Asia and other parts of the world who are more well-educated are, are replacing them. Those are all the people who attacked the Capitol were those who feel they were being replaced. Um, that, that fear they have is not going away. Uh, but what Biden can do is build a coalition of 60 to 70 percent of Americans, some of whom still consider themselves Republicans, who are not in that category by focusing on issues, not identity, not uniting us, but bringing people who disagree together around the issues they still agree on. Well, Jeremy Suri, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Excellent questions as always, Ian. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. And he has an article in the New York Times, Biden is wasting precious time fighting for America's soul. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.